your host. And the goal of our show is to explore a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us that get us thinking, get us feeling, get us imagining, and perhaps inspired or challenged to do something, whatever that may be. Maybe to volunteer. It may be to think in new ways. It may be to um, start a new career. Who knows? It's about making that connection. And this week, we're talking about our individual journey with diversity. Do you remember that moment when you understood diversity in a powerful way? When a difference became real to us? As many of you know, my mother was very active in civil rights, and we kidded that I learned how to walk in a a civil rights march. And very often, uh, when everything was going on and lots of things were happening and my mom was busy with civil rights work, I got to stay with Martha George and her family, and I adored Martha George. She was, she was like a second mother, and there's nothing like being cuddled by Martha George. You felt that the world was right and good. And one day, her whole family, who all embraced, embraced me even though they called me the crazy child, uh, were, there was a show on about Miss Black America. And I looked at Martha George going, someday can I be a Miss Black America? And Martha looked at me and said, no, child, you cannot. And I thought, why not? I I, want to be a Miss Black America. That looks great. And she paused. She goes, child, you will never be able to be a Miss Black America. I go, but why? And she put her arm next to my arm. And I'll never forget that. And she goes, look, child, you are white and I am black. I went, Martha, you're not black. You're caramel. You're brown. You're, you're what? No, child, you have to understand this. I am black and you are white. And oddly enough, I felt something happen, something wrong. <laughs> and I get emotional to this day thinking about Martha telling me no. But why? So today, I'm really, really excited because I have a friend of mine who's going to talk about her diversity journey and about feelings and about the permission to have those feelings. Uh, Kati Versailles will talk about her personal journey with diversity and inclusion and how that led her to do marvelous things with visitor services, cultural spaces, working with artists, working with nonprofits, uh, doing something that allows us to look and feel and imagine in new ways. And I'm excited to have Kati share her personal story. And in this first segment, we're going to learn about Kati's journey to America and, and her feelings of belonging and also her feelings of realization as well. Welcome, Kati. Thank you, Lori. So, Kati, you came here with some um, exciting opportunity with your family. Yeah, you could say that. I, have to, I must say I'm a little choked up by your story. It's really tender and really lovely. Um, so uh, about my family, my family came to America in the 50s, actually. Um, I am a first-generation Afro-Cuban-American. I was born and raised in Minnesota. Um, my uncle was a Minnesota Twin baseball player. He was actually a Minnesota Twin Hall of Famer, so I love Versailles. A lot of you may remember him. You also uh, have an uncle, another uncle as well. Yes, I do. Uh, an uncle on my mother's side of the family who was a Minnesota Twin, Sandy Valdespino. Uh-huh. So it's it's interesting because uh, baseball has been very, very good to me. <laughs> um, and one of the first Cuban uh Baseball players, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He was the first Latino baseball player to ever be um, an MVP for Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. So that is um, an honor that we're very, very proud of in our family. But along with that uh, came the fact that we, you know, came to America. We We were raised here. My brothers and I were born here. And English was our first language. I'm sorry, Spanish was our first language. So even though you were born here, your family really kept deep cultural roots and 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 insisted on 
being able to speak your native language. Absolutely. To, to live in our home and to be raised in our home was to not know that you weren't perhaps in Miami or mm-hmm. in Cuba. Um, we ate Cuban food. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke the language. We were raised by our grandfather. It was a very traditional Cuban upbringing. And in your Cuban upbringing, there was also some decisions that you told me about that your mother would make about where she would buy food and what kind of food that she would yeah, want to buy and yeah. what the investment in her, her own community would be. That's right. You know, and that has stuck with me as, as a, a business consultant and as a businesswoman. You know, just the other day I was with my mother and we were, we were traveling through Minneapolis and she said, that is the store that we used to buy our our groceries from when you were a little girl. And I know where we lived. We lived in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the car with my mother. We're in Minneapolis. And I said, why did you go to that store? And I remember being in that uh-huh. store. And she said, I would go to, we would go to that store because they sold plantain bananas. And what I can tell you is that we passed probably 17 grocery stores. You know, to get to that one grocery store that sold plantain bananas. But rest assured that my mother and my father's shopping cart did not only have plantain bananas. So Mm -hmm. that merchant walked away with this bundle of probably a $70 grocery cart because they served that one inclusive product, because they sold that one product that resonated with a Latino um, lady that was raising her family to uh, celebrate the ceremony of having our foods. And it must have been a, a big challenge for your mom and your dad to come to this you know, new land with uh, not necessarily all the same values that, that you had in Cuba. Can you tell me a little bit about what your family's values that you grew up really feeling like this is who I am? Sure. Well, and, you know, and it's always it always felt like a little bit like a punishment. So mm-hmm. we couldn't have like slumber parties. It's mm-hmm. very unorthodox in Cuba to actually have a slumber party to mm-hmm. not spend the evening mm-hmm. in the home of your family. That was somewhat unheard of. It was a little unheard of to have a bunch of friends over after school or um, on the weekends. You know, home time was family time. We would take the ceremony of having breakfast. So a, a breakfast in our home consisted of a baguette and a cafe con leche, which is a latte. So you're thinking about a bunch of little kids that are sitting around <laughs> having a French baguette and a cafe latte, uh, like they're at Starbucks, right? right. Um, so, you know, it is a little bit um, isolating because you realize that there are things that you do. You know, our hair was always up and braided. Uh, you know, we didn't really get to wear our hair down mm-hmm. a whole lot. We didn't wear a lot of um, bold, colorful prints mm-hmm. as children, Um we were not necessarily allowed to wear a lot of, um, I guess, nail polishes and things that seemed to be a little bit more contemporary or a little bit more mature. Mm-hmm. We were very modest. Um, we were raised by our grandchildren, or our grandparents. Um, we were very proud of that. I remember my grandmother conditioning my hair with avocados and mayonnaise. And I go to the store now with my children who... <laughs> pay umpteen dollars for avocados and mayonnaise and a conditioner that my grandmother would literally go to the kitchen and get to chopping and there was my hair conditioner. So we were a very organic and natural type of people. And when you went to school, your first day, what was that like? Well, my first day of school wasn't um, the way that I think most children remember entering kindergarten because I didn't have the pleasure of doing so at the time that that I was um, of age to go to kindergarten because I did not speak English to the degree that I was going to be permitted to go to kindergarten with that class. And I mm-hmm. think that that was um, right, wrong, naive, or indifferent. Um, it was very sh- sort of shocking. I, d- I don't think my mother expected that to happen. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't expect that to happen. I remember feeling very isolated by that decision. I remember, um, you know, I look at the world now with English ESL. It's, you know, you wouldn't imagine that a a child wouldn't go to kindergarten in Mm -hmm. Minnesota, right? Because they didn't speak the language. We have all of these great programs. But basically um, what that did for me 
was it made me realize that I wasn't socially accepted. And it took me many, many, many years to be able to finally say that, to have the courage Mm -hmm. to say that. But anyone who knows me knows how that has potentially manifested itself in my life. So Mm -hmm. I had to go back to the same grandparents, Mm -hmm. the same home, the same everything. But somehow I was going to magically learn how to speak English and be able to go to kindergarten the next year. And how did you do that? Well, there's this really, really kind and inclusive place called Sesame Street. Oh, really? And you can say what you want about it, but in my life and in my world, Sesame Street was the conduit. It truly was the conduit between being able to go to kindergarten one year and being able to go, you know, and not having been able to go the year before. I had the social... Did you need to do self-teaching, essentially? Absolutely. I remember going to um, watch my mother go to school to learn how Mm -hmm. to speak English. I remember watching people come and and teach my mother what it is to vote and taking her to vote. I mean, there's all of these things that when you talk about the socialization of people that sincerely... Um, have one culture and one communication in one home, and how do you create? How do they create the pathways in, within their communities? Um, the bridges. The bridges. And Sesame Street was my bridge. I had two younger brothers. I had to get them off to kindergarten on time. I had to know that they weren't going to have the same path. So. So with that, I have to uh, jump in. We're having to go to our next segment, but I do want to remind folks. Powderhorn Park Art Fair is today and tomorrow from 10 to 6 and 10 to 5. Powderhorn Park, 3400, 15th Avenue South. And we'll be... (laughs) We'll be coming back and we're going to talk to Kati about what work she's doing now and how that her background has inspired the work she's doing today. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Come and see the uplifting drama, Aphrodite's Refugees. The gods play a high-stakes game of cards to determine the fate of one young man and his siblings. A mostly true story based on interviews with refugees. A theatrical play about resilience, perseverance, and family by Mantra Performance. Presented as part of the Minnesota Fringe Festival, August 2nd through 12th. I miss to sleep in a house. I would like to be awake to see the wall. This is Lori Swanson. Minnesota's a special place. As your Attorney General, I've stood up to powerful interests to keep it that way. Lori Swanson. From taking on drug companies that inflated prices and forcing a corporate polluter to clean up our drinking water to taking on Donald Trump as he attacks what we value most as Minnesotans. Now I'm running for governor because there's too much at stake to let Donald Trump and the special interests push policies that hurt our state. Swanson for governor. As governor, I'll continue to defend health care for everyone and I'll lower the cost of health care and prescription drugs. I'll work to keep our kids safe in school and defend our schools against drastic cuts that jeopardize our kids' futures and our state's economy. I've been proud to be your Attorney General, and as your Governor, I'll keep standing up for what's right and get things done for Minnesota. Lori Swanson for Governor. Prepared and paid for by Swanson for Governor. Do you ever feel like the sidekick in your friendship? Has your name tag ever been printed, Jamie's friend? Is your Instagram full of pictures of your friends and your elbow? You may be suffering from sidekick-itis, but there is a cure. Come see Next the Musical, a sidekick story. Created by Angela Fox, Jason Kruger, and Tim Wick. A new kids' musical playing at the Minnesota Fringe Festival August 2nd through the 12th. For more information, look us up on Facebook, Next the Musical, a sidekick story. Or find our page on minnesotafringe.org. We hope to see you at Next the Musical, a sidekick story.
radio show where we talk about ideas that matter. And today we're talking about our individual journey with diversity. And we've had the privilege to have Kati Versailles be able to share with us uh, what what her personal journey has been as well as we're going to be talking about the work that she does. Um, but we were talking during break about looking at um, African-American, looking about shades of color and how we see shades of color and how we understand ourselves um, as we developed in our society about shades of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about that, Connie. Well, you know, to me, it's been in my life and I approach I approach everything about um, diversity and inclusion from a very personal place because it's, it's the only space that I understand. And it has amazed me over time that I think that people are very intimidated by the topic. It feels taboo. Um, we're all afraid to say the wrong things. And um, the reality is that the more the, the more that we learn about ourselves and our own self-identity and our own inclusion and our own journey, the more we're able to facilitate um, from a place of power and a place of self that helps other people look within themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's really all that we're trying to achieve. We've had uh, a very tender morning, and it's all about us talking just about ourselves. And that's the dialogue that we're hoping to um, inspire in others. What I can tell you, um, shamefully to a degree, is that when growing up in in Minnesota and walking in whiteness, you know, uh, as a as a Afro Latina, um, what I can tell you is that being Latina seemed to be a lot more accepted than being Afro to the to the degree that for many years of my life I identified as Cuban American. I completely. Um, I, I didn't even discuss the fact that I was Afro with anyone. I have an absolute Afro background. To look at me is to know that I am Afro. Um, to look at my my uh, grandparents is to know that we are Afro people. But it was more, um, I think it was just more advantageous to talk about myself as a Latina, to talk about the fact that my family was Cuban, from Cuba, um, to talk about the fact that I spoke um, Spanish. I think that that was all sort of the pretty, sort of sexy side of it. And the Afro piece of it just sort of clouded, um, sort of brought a little bit of ambiguity and and confusion to that identity, not only to myself, but to the world around me. And it wasn't until... um, I had the privilege of I have the privilege of having a brother who works very um, extensively in racial equity training and development, and he has been a great mirror to me of who we are as a people. To hear him take his personal journey through his Afro heritage, through our Afro heritage, and realizing, wait a minute, he's not talking about himself; he's talking about us. He's talking about our family. And why aren't we having that dialogue as a family? And why why aren't I embracing that part of who I am, the beauty of it, the power of it? And why am I sort of explaining around the fact that both of my grandparents are incredibly dark people, but they're still Cuban? Mm-hmm. Um, so I am I am proud to say that over the last several years, I've I've truly embraced the Afro identity of who I am and who my family is. And it has not been without, without pain. And, you know, I guess, um, a little bit of embarrassment, you know, that I didn't know that for myself, but I think on the, that it wasn't reinforced, that that it wasn't wasn't celebrated, that I didn't celebrate it. Shame on me, you know, and shame on me for, um, walking in a world that um, was telling me who I was and that I was accepting being told that, that I wasn't That it was creating. more acceptable and more comfortable to be a Latina. Absolutely. And that I was okay with that. And mm-hmm. that I sort of didn't, I didn't even see, you know, sort or of. Or acknowledge. I didn't see or acknowledge the fading shades of black. And that's what I tell my, my daughters about is, um, we don't want to have that fading shades of blackness in our heritage, in our family, in our story, and in our communities. We are here to elevate blackness. We are here to embrace blackness. And we are black people. And you wrote a book about that. Um, I wrote a book about um, etiquette and inspiration of becoming your best self. 
Mm-hmm. And my book was, um, I wrote that book in probably 2008. It was called The Better Me. It was uh, a bucket list project. It was something that uh, was inspired by my children and wanting them to understand themselves and the world around them. Um, it's a sort of if Dr. Seuss and Gandhi met <laughs> and they wrote a book that inspired children um, to be kind, to be – when you really look at it – when I look at it now, it's really the story, the tale of inclusion mm-hmm. and self-acceptance right. and um, championing others and being a servant to others. Um, but it's 12 really simple – vignettes, um, little things like um, if you're not invited to a party, don't be sad. Instead, say happy birthday with a smile as if you had. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens in those intercepts when you feel isolated, when you feel um, like you have been uh, disinvited, mm-hmm. not included, um, to be a part of something. And a how survivor's you, guide. A survivor's guide. <laughs> to, uh, to the non-inclusion. Exactly. To the conversations that people weren't talking about. So that at a very young age, they had these little tender uh, snippets that would remind them of how to compose themselves and move forward in that moment. Mm-hmm. And when did you realize that you wanted to make diversity and inclusion part of your career? Um, I think... That I knew that I had to make it a part of my career when I realized that I had gone to a certain place with um, sort of my signature as a leader around connection. Um, I think that I, I it became very clear to me that um, over the course of my career, a common thread uh, was the fact that I was able to connect and inspire people to look at a product um, to look at a um, experience and draw something deeply personal from that. And that that ability to create that level of connection what, had an economic value to it, that it created um, a, a, almost a need for that product or that experience to be represented in a person's life in a very uh, deeply personal way. And the work that you're doing now includes working with visitor services um, cultural spaces, artists, nonprofits, food and retail, entrepreneurs, all sorts of professionals out there. And it seems to me when we've talked about this before, it's, it's really about understanding how to create the space for folks to connect in a positive way. It really comes down to the magnification of a mission. Mm-hmm. It's just the bottom line. In this world, there's so much B2B business taking place. Business there's to business. Business to business. There's so many businesses in a business. And um, what you realize, whether you're uh, one of my clients that's just a, you know an entrepreneur that's just trying to have a product or um, – or a service that they're doing in the, in that building, or you're actually the entity itself, the building itself is magnifying the mission is really what needs to be important to everyone that touches that experience. Because at the end of the day, um, all of those companies have very different compensation packages. All of those companies are doing very differently in the stock exchange. All of those companies have different hiring practices and all of the above But when they're in that building, what they do share, the one commonality that they have is that visitor, that guest, or that customer. And we'll learn more about how Cotty advises and encourages folks to look at what are the opportunities? What are the opportunities to connect? And we'll hear about how her journey started at Starbucks. Oh, gee, that'll be fun. That was a long time ago. More on that. We'll be right back. Please stay tuned. Do you ever feel like the sidekick in your friendship? Has your name tag ever been printed, Jamie's friend? Is your Instagram full of pictures of your friends and your elbow? You may be suffering from sidekick-itis, but... There is a cure. Come see Next the Musical, a sidekick story. Created by Angela Fox, Jason Kruger, and Tim Wick. A new kids musical playing at the Minnesota Fringe Festival August 2nd through the 12th. For more information, look us up on Facebook, Next the Musical, a sidekick story. Or... Find our page on minnesotafringe.org. We hope to see you at Next the Musical, a sidekick story. 
Hi, everybody. Make plans to attend the one and only Powderhorn Art Fair on Saturday and Sunday, August 4th and 5th in the heart of South Minneapolis and picture-perfect Powderhorn Park. Experience and purchase original artwork from more than 230 artists. Spend time with your family and friends creating your own work of art at over half a dozen art stations. And don't forget to grab a bite to eat from over 25 different food trucks. So join us on Saturday, August 4th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Or Sunday, August 5th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. or both. The Powderhorn Art Fair is proudly brought to you by Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association in collaboration with the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board with a generous gift from the Metropolitan Regional Art Council. Again, join us for over 230 artists, 25 food trucks, and six arts experiences on August 4th and 5th. So we'll see you there at one of the most local art fairs around. In 1994, Quentin Tarantino released Pulp Fiction, a groundbreaking film that changed the way movies were made. The only problem? You couldn't bring your kids. Until now. This year at the Minnesota Fringe Festival, we present a mortar-flagging adaptation of Tarantino's masterpiece, wiped clean of all the offensive sex, drugs, and language, but retaining all the wholesome and socially acceptable violence. Your kids will love it. Note, this show is not actually appropriate for children. A family-friendly Pulp Fiction is presented as part of the Minnesota Fringe Festival, taking place August 2nd through 12th. For more information, look us up on the Fringe Festival website at www.fringefestival.org. A family-friendly Pulp Fiction. Your kids will monster fishing love it. Actually, they won't. You should by no means bring your children to this show. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Haas. It's going to be a rainy weekend. Today, chance of showers with a high near 80. Tonight, chance of thunderstorms with a low around 68. And Sunday, chance of showers, partly sunny with a high near 85. Warner Stallions is celebrating the grand reopening of its remodeled original store in St. Paul this weekend with food and fun for the family. On top of their unbeatable appliance prices, enjoy face painting and treats from Minnesota favorites, Johnny Pops and No Name Steak. Learn more at WarnerStallions.com dot com slash events welcome back to connections radio show where we talk about ideas that matter i'm laurie fitz your host and today i have my friend kati versailles who's been sharing about her personal journey with diversity and inclusion and in our segment that we're entering now we're going to be talking about how did diversity and inclusion become part of her career part of her mission and we gave you a tease that we were going to talk a little bit about how you got started at Starbucks and how that inspired you to uh, be where you are today. Sure. So, it, you know, I worked for Starbucks for 15 years. So it's definitely been the most um, influential career company that I had. And over the course of the 15 years, I had I played eight different roles across four different uh, divisions of the company. So I worked in company-operated stores, which is the freestanding store that we're all familiar with. I worked in licensed stores, which is when you go to a Starbucks in a college campus or an airport, a professional services building, um, a military base, a hospital, that sort of thing. So you I worked, really were introduced to lots of different industries. Lots of different industries. I spent more time representing – I have spent more time representing the companies that I represent outside of their four walls than I have inside <laughs> of their four walls. Um, food service, I, I did a lot of um, what we call the We Proudly Brew, some of what we see maybe in a um, – in a. I guess like if you're in an inline cafeteria at work. And then I had the opportunity to work with Starbucks International, both domestically and abroad. So How did that happen? Well, I, it started when I was a store manager uh, at Starbucks on 54th and Lindell in Minneapolis. And um, International said we hired a president of the U.K., um, Market and uh, we would like him to train in a Starbucks in Minnesota. He himself was a Minnesotan at the time, and they selected my store. And so I worked closely with the international department to make sure that his in-store immersion was set up. And that's the point where you're really enculturating someone. So you think about um, inclusion and culture, and and what made so, what made me that cultural leader that they said, well, this is the person that will really enculturate him best. And I think that um, – And so were you enculturating them with the Starbucks culture 
That, that's correct. The, you're, so you're 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 in, you're enculturating them to the corporate culture, to the customer culture, to the in-store, you know, partner culture, and to the country of origin, the farmer culture, because mm-hmm. it's all connected. And I think we do a much better job of connecting that as employers today. I think that that interconnectedness mm-hmm. of inclusion is something that's much more methodically considered now. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't surprise me that someone who came from a cultural, def, you know, from a disadvantage once upon a time and had to learn to enculturate and socialize. You saw the clues. I saw the clues yeah. and I understood. I was more attuned to what really mattered, what was at the heart of the mission of the experience, as opposed to all of the peripheral things. You and could I could read the culture. I could I could I could feel the cult I could mm-hmm. create the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an energy. It was an aura and it was an attitude in everything that we did, from the way that we took out the trash to the way that we um, cleaned the bathrooms, to the way that we made lattes. It was just the energy in which we celebrated the opportunity to honor that farmer, to honor that customer, and to honor that moment. So it was celebrating the brand. You know, because you've created the culture of the brand, but there was something more. It was the energy that you seem to talk about that that had a there's a, a life. Huge, there's a huge energy. You know, when I was I was a, a, the manager of the quarter um, many many years. I can't I can't tell you when because these things don't really matter to me. But I remember going to Seattle, and that was when the company was still really really small. And they said every manager of the quarter had to answer a very specific question, and my question was. What was your most memorable Starbucks moment? And I remember laboring, like not wanting to go in the room, not wanting to do the interview like I didn't want to do with you today because (laughs) this is not what I do well. But uh, I just remember saying to the camera crew, I really don't, I just, I I know what the answer is, but I don't want to tell the story. It's It's just not, it's just not like everybody else. And they said, just tell us the story. We won't roll the camera. Just tell us the story. And there was a gentleman, his name was Steve. He would come into our Starbucks every morning. We were probably the first, you know, he drove to the Starbucks um, in traffic. He woke up next to a beautiful person. But it seemed like at the moment that he was at that counter every morning at 730, it was as if we were the first people he ever saw. It was the first moment of his life. And we understood the magic of that moment. And so Steve would come in like many other customers every day. One day Steve stops coming in. And you know something's wrong. Months later, um, his wife, who didn't come in that often with him, his children didn't come in that often. This was his place with his Starbucks people. He would ring them in sometimes just to dog and pony him a little bit, but this was his Starbucks. His wife came to me. It was a busy, busy morning at the Galleria. I was making drinks. And she said, Cuddy, can you please give me four grande cups, just four grande cups, And I said, without coffee? And she said, just four grande cups. And I handed her the the cups, and I said, why do you want them? And she said, because me and my children are going out to send Steve's ashes to sea. And when we think about what would he want to hold in, what would we want to hold him in, what would represent what he would want to be held in, it's a Starbucks cup. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, the sea of customers didn't matter. The voice of the barista barking drinks at me didn't matter. I just, in that moment, I walked to the to the retail wall. I grabbed a beautiful porcelain uh, Starbucks canister, and I handed it to her, and I kissed her, and that was it. It was the last time I ever saw her. And everything else just continued. It just it fell right back into place. Everybody was there to pick up what really didn't matter as much as the the heart of the experience, the reason that we were there. And I think that those who know how to enculturate are very courageous. It's a very courageous person who understands sort of what's happening. In that um, moment. In that moment, in the rift. Um, there's, There's just a space between the technical and the emotional that has to happen. And that's when you know that you understand what it is to create an experience as opposed to a transaction. And that became part of your driving interest is how do you create that for others who represent their business? How do you create that magic within? How mm-hmm. do you create that, that metric that is completely tangible 
and emotional. And I think that people feel that emotional intelligence and tangible experience, res- technical, res- technical, blah, blah, blah. Te- yeah. tangible results are, are not the same. You can't, you have to have one or the other. Or you're just good in one or the other. Or and, you're just you good at slotted. one or the other. Yeah. But exactly. it can be, you believe it can be trained. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, look at, I mean, look at Michael Jordan, right? That's magic in motion. Uh-huh. I, you know, a lot of days, a lot today, I, a lot of the times I call it a mission in motion. And sometimes it's really simple. Sometimes it's just being able to leverage the fact that you are bilingual and having the courage to connect with somebody in another language, right? When that's not the social norm in the moment. How many times have I looked at customer snapshots and they say, you know, we're not very happy because the baristas are speaking another language to one another. Or the people that are working in your restaurant are speaking another language to another, to one another. And we don't like that. That doesn't make us comfortable. And they're self-conscious because I think they're being talked about. Exactly. Rather than it's just like we were talking about football. If they only knew. <laughs> you know, if they only soccer. knew. Yeah, yeah. But when you really consider the power of that bilingual um, ability – when it connects with the guest, right? Yeah. When you're creating an opportunity for the guest to now be able to be um, engaged um, from their mm-hmm. from their native tongue or from their position of comfort, you got to take that chance. Yeah, you know, it's not always it's not always the um, the popular vote, but it's the emotional vote. And you've seen that being able to um, look at anyone being able to connect with a visitor. We were talking earlier about how sometimes if you are not bilingual, let's say that you only speak Spanish, yeah. how do you encourage that person to be able to have that magic? And that you... It's you, really interesting that you say that because I think that to a, lot, to, a, to a large degree, a lot of people are marginalized in their ability to speak English. Mm-hmm. Or at least in their ability to connect with people speaking English. Um, an example would be. Okay. We're going to take just a time out for just a moment. We're going to be um, having Kati share with us a little bit more about how visitors are going to be able to connect with folks, whether or not they speak English or not. I exactly. Mean, th- there's a way that you can train individuals to know how to connect with certain questions. Exactly. Certain ways that, that allow people to uh, not necessarily have a full-on conversation, right. but be able to have a moment that connects them, or at that least makes them feel like they're uh, welcomed and that this is a place of hospitality. Exactly. Yep. That's the conversation. That's the, the magic, the magic one that needs to happen. Um, you think about, you know, sometimes it's those little things. I was in a, I was in a store the other day and you know, the roundup, we are, we're all familiar with the roundup. Mm-hmm. So whether you're buying uh, these days, whether you're in a restaurant or you're in a retail store, they say, would you like to round up your purchase for Such and such a cause. Such and such a cause. And there was a lady who was at the counter, and she did not speak English well enough to the degree that they they asked the the static roundup question. Uh And she said, huh? And they said, never mind. And I thought to myself, now what does it feel like to be that woman? She's intelligent enough to get herself here, Mm -hmm. to make a purchase. Uh, you know, you, she's intelligent enough to know mm-hmm. that this is what it costs to buy this product, mm-hmm. um, to be a consumer. Mm-hmm. And then you have this opportunity to include her in a Roundup program or make her feel like she's not even as, um, you know, she's marginalized. Not worthy right? to, to explain. Exactly. Not worthy of the explanation, not capable of participating. But what, make no mistake about it. What she knows is that whatever you were talking about to the guests before her. She didn't get. She didn't get. Whatever it is. And so that's where, as a society, we have to try a little bit harder yeah. to think of a way. That, the same way that we figured out how to get that same lady to buy a credit card and mm-hmm. it'll give her 10% off of that purchase that day right. and she's going to do that. How do you get her to be able to participate in something philanthropic? And you feel very strongly that... Diversity and inclusion, there is a strong economic 
uh, factor. It is without a doubt. I mean, it is with, there you have it. I mean, there you have it right there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that if you look at the example of my mother and how many grocery stores she didn't go to right. until she found the one that sold the plantain banana. And then and they, I can she guarantee had all you, of her business. And I can guarantee you that shopping cart was full because I ate at that house, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at the, this other lady who didn't get to participate and in the roundup. And she may never come back. And she may never come back or she will always know that there is a, a percentage of that experience when it is fully loaded, mm-hmm. when it is fully considered that she is not going to be able to participate in. And she walks away feeling less than. Less than. A hundred percent less than. Everybody else before me said yes to something or said no to something. They were empowered as and, consumers. But, she, but they, she under, they understood and so did she not get a, a, an opportunity? So, you know, she has no idea what she did. How get. is she left? Yeah. How is she yeah. left? Well, you talk a, a lot about um, tactics and strategies and looking at inclusion, currency exchange, and interconnectedness. I know we don't have um, a whole lot of time now, but we're going to preview that for the next segment. Sure. We'll, we'll share more about that. I'm having a wonderful time. I'm hoping that you do too out there listening uh, to our conversation about diversity and our personal journey. We'll be back in just a short while after a few short announcements. Everybody, make plans to attend the one and only Powderhorn Art Fair on Saturday and Sunday, August 4th and 5th in the heart of South Minneapolis and picture-perfect Powderhorn Park. Experience and purchase original artwork from more than 230 artists. Spend time with your family and friends creating your own work of art at over half a dozen art stations. And don't forget to grab a bite to eat from over 25 different food trucks. So join us on Saturday, August 4th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Or Sunday, August 5th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. or both. The Powderhorn Art Fair is proudly brought to you by Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association in collaboration with the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board with a generous gift from the Metropolitan Regional Art Council. Again, join us for over 230 artists, 25 food trucks, and six arts experiences on August 4th and 5th. So we'll see you there at one of the most local art fairs around. Stages Theatre Company is dedicated to creating a space where diverse opinions, courageous dialogue, and community engagement is not only valued, but vital to our shared artistic and educational success. Stages Theatre Company creates a welcoming home for all. For over 30 years, Stages has supported quality theater programming for children. Stages gives opportunities for youth to be on stage, backstage, in the audience, and in the classroom. Whether you come to see a show, enroll a young person in a workshop, or benefit from their outreach programs in the community, Stages brings art to life. Learn about Stages Theater by going to stagestheater.org and become part of the magic of live theater by taking your family to an amazing show or enrolling someone you love in an education program. Stages Theater Company operates out of the Hopkins Center for the Arts, located in Main Street in the heart of downtown Hopkins. For more information on Stages Theater, go to stagestheater.org. That's stagestheater.org. Come and see the uplifting drama, Aphrodite's Refugees. The gods play a high-stakes game of cards to determine the fate of one young man and his siblings. A mostly true story based on interviews with refugees. A theatrical play about resilience, perseverance, and family by Mantra Performance. Presented as part of the Minnesota Fringe Festival, August 2nd through 12th. I miss to sleep in a house. I would like to be awake to see the wall. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and we've been talking about diversity in our personal life as well as how can diversity and inclusion be a force to support economic growth, uh, how it can enliven uh, the way that we're all connected. 
So I have had my uh, good friend, Kari Versailles, who does consulting work, uh, share her personal story as well as share some insights for us to think about in the business world as well. So, Kari, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, what does this all look like in the business world? Well, like, that's something that you and I have talked about a, a lot, actually, in the past. And where I think there's a rub for me with that with that question is, what does the future look like? Yeah. Um, to me, is very much the primary color wheel of where we should be going with the conversation. I think the conversation should be about what the future should consider, um, what the future should honor, advocate, who the future should usher in, how we should be heralding our community and um, our consumers and our producers in in retail. That's what I think we need to be more concerned about, and that's what I think an an inclusive society does. So if you think of inclusion as the new exclusion, when you look at retail, when you look at consumerism, Everybody is becoming more fanatical about that whole story. Everybody is is looking at purchasing a product and saying, well, how does the, my purchase of this product over this product affect the country of origin, right. the farmer, uh, the producer, the manufacturer? What kind of people? Especially millennials. I think millennials totally understand that our world is interconnected. That's it. And if we don't honor the interconnection, that we are not doing our all. We're not doing our all. And we have to tell them that story. That story. And if you think about it, if for no other reason, if you look at inclusion and diversity and you say – any any um, product that is produced in a country of origin where there's a farmer and um, where there's a you know a country that's a, a distant land, mm-hmm. well that distant land is representative, I'm sure, of people of color, of people of ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, and you're starting to see some of those depictions being uh, prominently placed in the marketing, right? And and you might say, well, that makes sense because that's where that product is from. But what you really aren't um, necessarily grasping uh, the importance or the relevance of is the fact that that brings pride in many ways. That story, that tale of that land, that tale of that farmer, that tale of that heritage um, brings pride to another consumer that may not be representative of the dominant culture here in America, right? So the primary color wheel, tell me more about that, how you, you, you view the primary color wheel. I just think it's, it's a very surface way of um, it's not really going down into the belly of, um, of the matter. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not really going to magnify the mission of anything if we're only looking at what it tastes, ta- you know, tastes sounds, and looks like. Those are – We have a lot of visual cues. We have a and, lot of visual and, cues. And it seems like even recently there's a lot of fears that come up with visual cues. Correct. And, and that we're facing some challenges in our society because there's an, a reliance on visual cues and then there's also um, some of the fear-based. And and I believe what you're talking about in terms of connecting at a feeling level – Yeah. And connecting beyond the senses of and beyond what might be unconscious biases, whatever, when we get beyond all of that and I can really connect with another person who's coming into your store, into your sphere as a friend, family, whatever it is, yes. there's a different kind of connection you're talking about. There's a, it's, a, it's a wholly different connection. It's a, it's a, it's a more than me mm-hmm. connection. So. Um, another, you know, in the work that I do and in a lot of the spaces that, that I have the privilege of, of consulting to, they're very mission-minded. They're very um, mission-based organizations that are very interested in social change, in social justice. And you might go into the eatery or the retail store or uh, the parking lot and maybe not make that association. 
that um, there's a social cause, there's a social herald that's happening in this in this building, and that's important to the mission of this institution. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes, how are we pushing the boundaries of participation? How are we looking at the um, third-party vendorship and saying, we want to be a better vendor, not only to this institute, to this building and to this visitor experience, but to this institution. Because I think that that's the way that you create long-term value and that's the way that you create an adored brand. You know, mm-hmm. when you look at um, the brands in society that are doing a beautiful job of um, connecting with people emotionally, mm-hmm. they're connecting with people socially. Right. And they're connecting with people socially just as um, profoundly in country of origin where they're producing their goods as they are literally across the freeway in Frogtown and helping with some of the social justice um, you know, initiatives that are happening for that community mm-hmm. or some of the food deserts that are being done in um, the rural parts of the Twin Cities. So as we're we're wrapping up, we only have a, a, a couple more minutes. I want to make sure that we get your email out there because there may be some folks out there that go, ah, I want I want Cotty to come and talk to me about the business that I'm in and how I can create a more inclusive and welcoming environment. So give us that sure. that email. Yep, I can be reached at cottyversias at gmail dot com. It's really simple. C O T T Y V as in Victor E R S A L L E S at gmail dot com. And as we're wrapping up today. If you could have one message that you want people to think about in terms of their individual journey and then also to be thinking about what work that they can be doing within their own business that that um, forwards your ideas about connecting at that emotional level, what would that be? I think that um, at the end of the day, uh, if you have a very – if you stay committed to your – sense of self and yourself, your journey of um, advocating on behalf of and honoring and ushering and ambassador, being an ambassador um, for the people that you are representing and representative of, um, whether that's your customer and or your employer, your employees or um, the businesses that you have uh, the privilege of, of being a part of. The deeper you go into that connection, that interconnectedness, uh, your curiosity around how it really works um, and the mission that is most common and that you're looking to magnify collectively, that's where you're going to find customers for life and that's where you're going to build business partnerships for life because that's an ever-evolving work and that work will never be done. For many years, we've marketed to the majority Uh, population. And as I think of the primary will, I think uh, it extends our awareness of opportunity to connect with more and deeper. Absolutely. And that's our future. So thank you for listening today to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. Uh, Be sure to head to Powderhorn Park today. It's going from, uh, there's a great art fair going on that I highly recommend. Great opportunity. And thank you, Cotty. Thank Thank you you for being here. We appreciate appreciate you. you. Thank you.